How we came up with these is based on our experience of being sent tracks to mix. And it's like, okay, you hit these boxes, but you, you kind of missed this requirement to make a good record. This has to happen. This is the Self-Recording Band Podcast, the show where we help you make exciting records on your own, wherever you are, DIY style. Let's go. Hello and welcome to the Self-Recording Band Podcast. I am your host, Benedict Hyde, and I'm here with my friend and co-host, Malcolm Owen Flood. How are you, Malcolm? Hello, hello. Hello. I'm great, man. <laughs> How are you? Happy Monday? Yeah, happy Monday. I'm good. Fantastic, actually. Fantastic. Yeah. I, I had a cool story I want to share from the weekend. Can't wait. Um, have you seen the movie Pirate Radio? No. Are you familiar with it? What's it called? Pirate Radio? Yeah. Uh, I'm looking it up right now. See if you recognize the cover. It was a pretty big movie. Really? And yeah. I think you would like it if you, yeah, if you haven't seen it, you should totally, totally check it out. All right. There are several. Okay. It's a different title here in Germany. It's called Radio Rock Revolution. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, oh, yeah. That's weird. I found like, yeah, the name Pirate Radio. And then this says The Boat That Rocked. Yeah. That's the original and... title it says here. Oh, weird. Okay. Huh. Interesting. Well, yeah, if you've seen The Boat That Rocked, Pirate Radio, or what was yours called? Radio Rock Revolution. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Have you seen any of those titles? <laughs> That's relevant. Um, so anyways, there's this DJ, uh, a real-life DJ that's um, portrayed by somebody in, in this movie called Johnny, um, Johnny Walker, like the whiskey. <laughs> okay. I think that's a whiskey. Uh, yeah. But uh, his name's Johnny Walker. He's one of the most famous radio DJs ever because essentially what they did is they started a pirate radio station on this boat when they weren't allowed to and just kept playing rock music um, out to re rebellious teens <laughs> around uh, the UK. And anyway, so Johnny Walker's like legendary. Um, and he's still got a show on BBC Radio 2. And they played a song I mixed and produced on Saturday, which is great. There's like an audience of like 15 million people, apparently. Oh, wow. It was, uh, Alice Cooper was on the show and stuff. It was pretty sweet. <laughs> That's sweet. W which band was it? Uh, a guy named Brett Smith Daniels. And uh, he's, he's a great, amazing guitarist. So it's like a rock song I'm super stoked with. It's like one of the biggest productions I've been a part of where we have like a giant horn section. And, and uh, I mean, it was one guy that played all the horns, but there's a huge horn arrangement and string arrangement on the song. It's very like cinematic. It, it should be on like a James Bond movie or something, I feel like. <laughs> That's um, pretty awesome. Like I saw that uh, Hans Zimmer did the, the soundtrack for the movie. Yeah. Which is also yeah. probably Always good. pretty good. Yeah. Definitely. Like, um, so yeah, that was a cool thing that happened. Thought I'd share that. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Congrats, man. That's uh, like you've been doing some cool stuff lately. Like the last time we had the radio airplay for the Wet Future. Right. The band that you did and now this. So yeah. Stoked. Yeah, very stoked. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> Brett Smith Daniels is actually the artist that was featured on the radio this past weekend. Uh, he is self-recording a song currently right now, and I'm hoping I'm going to get the files to mix that this week. Um, but he's he's going for the DIY thing that we're teaching, and I think it's going to be great. He's been sending me little demos along the way to see how it's coming along, and uh, so maybe we can get that on the radio. It's, all, it's I just want to get a fully DIY recording that I get the mix on the radio so bad. <laughs> That'll just be like the, the biggest proof of our, our whole podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, yeah, as I said, that happened to me twice yeah, last year, yeah, which totally. is awesome. I'm and jealous. <laughs> every single time that happens is like, uh, well, it's, it's, it's the best thing. Uh, you said something interesting that I want to have a question uh, on uh, real quick because you said like he's sending you demos and um, yeah, you're going back and forth, probably giving him feedback or I don't know how the process, uh, what the process looks like, but 
Do you actually do that a lot with like self-recording bands and people? Do you like that process? Or is it usually that they just recorded the first thing you hear is the final recorded thing? I like to get stuff sooner um, yeah. than later. So I, like the potential of being able to spot a problem in advance can be such a huge advantage. So um, the, the sooner the better kind of thing. I think... In, in hindsight, I should have been asking them to send me even stems, maybe, <laughs> so I could like really look closely. Um, but I, I really trust his ability. He's, he's a very talented guy, so I'm sure it's going to be great. Cool, awesome. Yeah, I'm asking because I found that I really actually enjoy that process a lot. It's, like I always did it, but especially since I've stopped recording and I, since I do only mixing mastering, I spent more time doing the remote production thing where like mm. people send me demos, I give feedback, they refine, they send it again. I'll, feedback again and we go like we do it like that until we feel the the songs are finished and then they start recording and maybe i even give feedback on the the recording as you said like if if everything sounds good and i at first when my calendar was full with recordings and mixing and mastering and editing and all those things i couldn't spend as much time doing that and it was always it always felt like it was pretty exhausting and i was always i always felt a little behind on that stuff and now I can do that much more. And it's became part of my my package, basically, that I offer. And I found that I really enjoy it, actually. Like the just sitting back with headphones, listening, and only listening for the music more than anything. Right. And like writing down my thoughts in real time, sending it back. It's like something I really, really enjoy because it's I don't have to be in the ideal listening position. I don't have to even be in the studio. I can like ha take a walk and like just listen to the demos and see how they how the songs feel. That's a totally different perspective, and it's so helpful both for musicians and for me. So I was just curious about how, like, how you feel about that because I really enjoy that now. Yeah, I I think I've got it. I've had it both ways, um, where it's been a really good process, but then I've also had it where they are like sending me tracks, expecting me to have like it's almost they think that I've got the master session going. Yeah, for over like you know this undetermined amount of time that they're going to be recording, and like that doesn't really work. No. Like I can't if I'm not the producer, I can't be organizing and worrying about editing all these tracks and stuff like that. It's just, um, um it's a different mindset, yeah. you know, to be that person and a different job entirely, as we've discussed. Um, so sometimes there's some boundaries that I have to get established. Be like happy to look at these, but I'm just going to be like listening. You know, I'm yeah. not working the tracks yet until we're mixing um, and I'll just be offering thoughts kind of thing. Uh, I have a, a related question for you now. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I got 16, or no, I got nine songs, but they got 16 total coming um, for this band that I, I plan to be working with and uh, I listened to them all and made some notes kind of thing. I like to like do that. I, I listen to all of them in a row. I don't repeat any of them. And it's just like you said, like uh, I'm not in the sweet spot, like in work mode. I'm just listening and, and I just make my gut reaction notes. Yep. I personally like to not listen to the songs again until there's like a new version that shows up. Um, do, do you like do that as well? You know, like my, my philosophy is that I want to hear it for the first time and I want to have that ability for as long as possible. So ideally, by the time they send me a new version, I've forgotten about the song entirely. Like <laughs> exactly um, where I think some people, when they send me demos, they kind of think that I've been like thinking about it eight hours a day for since they emailed it to me. <laughs> yeah, but it's like you get like literally how long your song is is how long I'm trying to think about it, and then I'm literally trying to not think about it until I like I'll send you those notes and it's off my plate until the next time. <laughs> yes, is, uh, are you similar? Yes, totally. And I um actually people kind of like that now and i always explain it like that that i do it like this so my process is 
pretty similar. I get the demos, I listen, and while I'm listening in real time, I make notes. So I'm gonna sometimes I just I just write down my thoughts. Sometimes these notes will have things like, okay, like intro is cool. Let's see what happens. Oh yeah, um, verse like the transition to the verse is a little weird. Oh wow, and the chorus right. kicks in really well. Stuff like that. So I'm listening in real time and like writing down whatever I'm, I think. Um, yeah. And then I'm gonna, I'm I'm sending it to the band, and I tell them that I do that in real time once, not listening again, just as you said. And then if ideally there is enough time between that first round and the second round, so that as you said, I I forgot about the songs basically. And what then what I then do is I'll do the exact same thing the second time around, and I do not look at my notes from the first round. So mm. I do the same process. I listen to the songs just as I've, if as if it was the the first time. Um, I make. I write down everything that comes to mind. And then it's interesting to compare the two feedback rounds, the two notes, to see if some of the things are still the same or if yeah. some of the things are not appearing anymore on the new notes. And like, cool. this is a pretty interesting process sometimes for me. And uh, yeah, I do the exact same thing. And if it's and I don't want to do it if it's like too close. So if they send me demos, I send them the feedback. And then two days later, I get the new demos. I'll, If at all possible, I wait till I listen to them. Yeah, you need some space. That that like ability to hear for the first time is so valuable. Um, yeah, and then uh, like another kind of philosophy is like I'm I'm almost intentionally really vague that first listen through. It's like if the I don't think I almost listen to them all, even though if it's going to be an album. So for example, with these nine songs, I listen to them as if I'm choosing a single. Like if I can only choose one. So if there's like a song that's not single material to me, I just write. Not a single, yeah. Like, cool album track. Like there's no there's no feedback at all because I'm not worried about oh, okay. that song right now, kind of thing. Um, and we'll we'll get to that when we are working on that song, kind of thing. And I'll obviously dive deeper. But for demos, kind of thing, it's like ah, well, let's focus on the good shit. Okay, okay, yeah, <laughs> for yeah, that yeah. first listen that. through kind of thing. And it's just like this has potential. This one doesn't. Um, yeah. And then sometimes there's like notes like hey, this verse is just boring. Um, but sometimes it's also just like kick ass guitar. <laughs> this yeah. riff's dope or whatever, you know, like it's it's just uh feeling. And I think some people get that. Uh, and but some people I think don't, whether like this isn't very detailed, but other people do realize that the reaction to the song rather than whatever your guitar part is, is much more important. That's like the most valuable feedback that I'm gonna be able to give is this is like I really think this is a good song. Like that that's what you need to hear. And we need to determine, are these songs good? <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I do similar things. I mean, I do listen to all of the songs. So the single thing is not really something I do. What I do is when I'm hired as like, if I'm not just mixing, but really like remote producing, stuff like that. If I So if, if there's the budget for so that I can spend even more time with the songs. Sometimes people want to do like 10 songs, but they've written 15 or they have 15 demos. And then they want my feedback on what I think are the songs that should go on the record. So then I make notes about like I think this one is not should not be on that. That's maybe a, I don't know for a split or a, a, right. a, a B side or whatever, or just throw it away entirely. Yeah, things like that. But um, usually I give feedback on every um, song. But yeah, it's like interesting, interesting topic. Like not really related to the today's episode, but like interesting and, no. <laughs> and I think for 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 people also interesting to hear yeah. how that works. Yeah. To clarify, I do listen to all the songs. It's just yeah. at the beginning, I'm, I'm prioritizing what I think they should focus on. And it's like, let's work on these songs for now because they're the priority. Let's do that while you're fresh. 
Totally. Um, one more thing before we end the banter here um, that I wanted to say, because that's what I've focused on this past weekend is I've, speaking of priorities, I always have like too much on my plate. Like that's totally like a problem that I create for myself because I, <laughs> I, I have a hard time saying no to things and I have to force myself to say no to stuff. But um, it was sort of a resolution that I uh, don't do as much anymore and that I I'm more selective and picky about stuff that I do and the commitments I I take on. And this weekend, I finally implemented the GTD method. I don't know if you're familiar with that, the Getting Things Done by David Allen. Mm -hmm. I've read the yes. book. It was fascinating, like mind-blowing to me. And I don't know, not it's not for everyone probably, but it like really speaks to me, to my personality type. I'm like an organizer and planner, and I really, really like his way of thinking and organizing things. So I took the time and implemented that system And I feel so much more organized and better. And I feel like it's pretty dangerous because now I feel like I could take on anything <laughs> because <laughs> I'm so well organized. <laughs> so I don't want to do that, obviously. But I feel like I'm much more in control of all the things that I already have on my plate. So I just want to say, if any of you feel overwhelmed with like music projects or like you have a business or side business or a day job and a band and whatnot, and you're constantly feeling behind, give that book a shot. It's like a, mm. a recommendation, really, that like just Try. See if it works for you. Yep. It's called Getting Things Done by David Allen. Um, it's been really, really cool for me. Yeah, it's a, a very well-regarded book, um, for sure. The the I almost wonder if it's been updated since I read it, because there was definitely some stuff that wasn't very modernized when I went through it. Um, but there's there's always, in books like that, they're classics for a reason. There's always like such good concepts to cherry-pick from, even yep. if you don't take the whole yeah. system, right? I think um, it's been modernized. I think the last edition was like a couple of years ago and like it has cool. all the digital tools and everything in it that we can use today. So nice. Um, yeah, nice. it's totally worked for me and it's more of the mindset behind it anyway. So yeah, yeah. just a little. There's that one, I, I can't remember the exact time he says, but it's like something like if it takes less than say 60 seconds, just do it right now. The Don't two minute, it down on all this. The two minute just, rule. The two minutes, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I've been trying to like work with that over this, even this last week, just like, There's no reason not to just do that one thing as soon as it hits me, um, where often there is a, a reason to delay. Um, like I try not to answer every email just as it comes in because that's like re reactive kind of thing. And I, I want to batch that stuff. But with, I don't know, like freaking washing the dish that I just used for lunch, like <laughs> whatever, yeah. just getting that stuff. So there's not, there's not like these little clutters that are just never going to be our priority because they're not important, but they still have to get done. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's, it's way too complicated to explain on this show. I just, it's just something that was on my mind. And I thought maybe for some of you listeners, if you like, if you make a record yourself, it's a lot of organizing and planning to do a lot of communication. Mm -hmm. You probably still have a job or you, I don't know, whatever you do, Uh, if you have a job, a family, a band, and maybe a side business or whatever, um, it's this is an interesting concept that you could look into. So, yeah, definitely. All right, let's, cool. let's get into yes. what we're actually meant to talk about at 18 minutes into the episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was like a so, mini episode right there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, if you are still listening, now we get to uh, the actual stuff. So, um, <laughs> we are doing part two of last week's episode, and it's about um, the. Essentials, basically, like the the minimum requirements uh, that you like. It's it's almost like a checklist of things you need to make sure you get it right, so that yes, um, it's gonna work out and sound good in the end, and you that you could work with mixers and don't have problems along the way and get the result you're going for. So we finished last time with drums, and we continue now with bass, 
guitars, vocals, and all the rest. Yeah, drums take up one whole episode, and then the rest gets another. <laughs> exactly. So just just to, if you just joined us this episode and didn't listen to last week's episode, what we're going to do is we're, we're talking about uh, minimum requirements technically, but also like when it comes to performance, um, pitfall, typical pitfalls, things to avoid. Like just we're sort of defining a, a standard that you need to hit if you want to get a professional product back from a mix engineer, for example. Or even if yeah. you're mixing yourself, like these are like the minimum requirements you need to make sure you get right during the recording and production phase. That's true. Yeah, 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 yeah it, it is true that it's even if you plan to mix yourself, that you still have to hit all these. But how we came up with these is based on our experience of being sent tracks to mix. And it's like, okay, you hit all these boxes, but you, you kind of missed this requirement to make a good record. This has to happen. <laughs> um, so this is... I think this is going to be a really useful series for people just to review before they start any recording. It's like, okay, yeah, have we thought about this? That has to get done. And then when we send it to Benny or Malcolm, they're going to be happy with us. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. All right, let's jump in. Listen to last last week's episode if you haven't yet. Um, and then, uh, yeah, you can catch up on that. And now this, let's uh, continue with bass. Okay, I was wondering if you're going to demand we start with guitar after drums. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, damn. Yeah, of course we need to start. No, uh, I'll go through the list. Uh, but yeah, guitars will be next, of course. Uh, um. By the way, Malcolm, Mal I just want to say it again. Malcolm, um, actually, you, you actually... You, I said something that you yes. interpreted as saying yes. guitars come no, after you drums. No, you confirmed. But... I just looked it up. You basically, because I've written it down, you <laughs> you basically confirmed that I was right <laughs> and that the right order to do things it is like drums, then guitar, and then bass. So I it's, don't know about it's, that. It's on uh, the episode. You, you said it. Hey friend, this is Benedict from the selfrecordingband.com and if you are producing your own songs, I have a question for you. Do you ever listen to your music and feel like something is just off? Maybe the drums sound weak, or the guitar tone bothers you, maybe the vocals don't really cut through the mix, or the whole thing just doesn't sound finished and professional, but you can't really put your finger on it? I know you want to release big, punchy, professional sounding songs, right? The type of authentic, unique art that connects with your audience on a deep level. But you're just not sure what's missing with your recordings. Somehow you just can't connect all the dots. And I get it, the amount of things to learn and all the conflicting information out there can be really overwhelming. Especially if you're a lone wolf trying to figure it all out on your own, right? Now here's the good news. Whether you've been self-recording for years or you're just setting up your first home studio, I want to offer you my personal one-on-one -on -one help. As long as you are determined to put in the work, I'm offering a limited amount of free one-on-one -on -one coaching calls with me. On this hour-long call, we'll dive deep into your recordings and create a personalized roadmap for you to finally solve the issues you're struggling with so that you can release music that you'll be proud of forever. If you are ready to see and believe that it's actually possible to achieve your goals and make the records you've always wanted to make, then go to theselfrecordingband.com slash call and apply for one of my limited coaching spots. I can assure you that making exciting and successful DIY records is very doable. We've done it. Lots of other people have done it. You can do it as well. Talk soon. Theselfrecordingband.com slash call. <laughs> okay, now right. let's move on with bass. 
yeah. Well, now that I have an Evertune, I, I'm, I'm happy to go guitars first. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So on to the, the episode. I'm sorry, people listening. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, really, like the, the, the most important thing is to get us a clean DI of that bass. Yes. Um, that'll give us so much power to undo any terrible engineering work done on grabbing a bass ampitone. Um, I see some nightmare tracks come in when people try and mic up like three different bass amps in the same room as each other. And uh, that can really be bad sometimes. It can like really be unusable. Um, and I mean, there's always a way, but a DI, we're off to the races. And obviously I still want people to try and get those amp tones. Like ideally you're sending us both a DI and an amp, but make sure that DI happens. That's so important. Yes, agreed. Um, nothing to add to this. Like we with a bass DI, you can do everything basically in mixing. It's like, yeah, make sure that sounds great. Everything else is like almost optional, and you can really be creative there. You can do whatever you want with your actual bass tone and just send it as a reference, or hoping that it can be used. As long as you have yeah. a clean, great sounding DI, you're free to do whatever you want with the bass tone. Yes. Yeah. Bass is this weird thing where. There's not a lot of variables in that uh, it's not like a drum kit where we have all these different mics and phase and stuff like that that we're always having to worry about. So it's much less complex. You don't need a huge amount of a gear investment to get a, a good bass recording done. Um, but knowing what to listen for as you produce a bass tra track is something that takes years of experience to really understand and hear the way that pros do um and i i don't even know why that is but it just is uh and so bass diy recording is kind of routinely not awesome um <laughs> which obviously we're trying to fix <laughs> yes yes yeah we have a whole episode on or maybe m multiple episodes at this point on on bass that you should definitely definitely check out um if you go to the show notes, by the way, which is the selfrecordingband.com slash 58, the show notes for this episode, there are always related episodes, um, links to related episodes in the show notes. So you'll find the the base episodes that I just mentioned there and you can like have a listen uh, because bass yeah. is really, really, really important and, and people often get so much wrong about it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. All right. Um, our favorite thing <laughs> to <laughs> say... <laughs> You need uh, new strings if you record bass, definitely. And probably a new pack of strings for every new song, at least. Or most of the time. Yep, at least replace that, that lowest one if you're hitting that all the time. <laughs> that would be very wise. Um, yeah, so, yeah, we've said that a hundred times. I'm not even going to beat it down. Yeah. New strings. Um, and then in tune, uh, when we say in tune, we really mean it with bass. Uh, and this is, in fact, why... Benny likes to do bass after guitars, but it's also for the same reason why I like to do it first. That, that, that's the best thing about this. We're doing totally opposite things for the same reason. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> One of us in Germany is wrong. And, <laughs> uh, but yeah, just like literally you got to be watching the tuner for every note you hit kind of thing um, and and tuning for each note if it takes it. Your, your instrument needs to be set up very, very well. Um, just that intonation is so important for a great sounding record. So don't underplay that. If you haven't checked the intonation on your instrument before you record, you screwed up. Do it again. <laughs> yeah, and I think that oftentimes people think the guitars are out of tune, or sometimes they even think the vocalist is out of tune when yes. it in fact is the bass. So in 
I would almost say like in 90% of all records that I got to mix, there was some tuning issues with the bass, like almost in every record. And it's some, it takes some experience to realize it's the bass because sometimes you really think it's the lead guitar or whatever. You think the solo is sort of weird. And then you, sometimes I pull out a Melodyne or whatever and like analyze the solo and I, I see that it's perfect basically, right. but it still sounds wrong. And then when I get to the core of the issue, it's often or most of the time it's the bass. Uh, right. Same thing can happen with vocals, and like it's just hard to hear when a very low note is out of tune. But in context, something just sounds off. So yep. really pay attention to that. Really pay attention. Make sure it's great. Um, uh, Jacob Hansen wrote a post into a forum we're both in, and uh, he said, "Bass is the foundation." So if you, you don't get that right, it's something along those lines. But bass is the foundation was one of them. So he, that was, uh, oh, somebody asked what they're tuning most often. And he said bass. He said bass over vocals is getting tuned digitally uh, more often, which I bet most people listening to this podcast would have never have said that. They would have always assumed vocals are being tuned more than bass. So you mean tuned so, in, in post-pro like um, yeah. after the fact? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, which is like, yeah, it's something I never thought about before, but totally true. And another reason why you need a great DI track, because if you have a distorted bass, for example, it's much, much harder to tune that compared to a yeah. clean DI with less harmonic content. Yeah, definitely. So if you're intending to use that weird octave multi-amp rig that you've got going on for the bass, it has to be perfectly in tune. Otherwise, we're going to have to use the DI um, and reamp something out of that DI to get a similar tone, which yes. is no problem, but just it's something to be aware of. Yes. Um, if, if you're really, really wanting to get that tone, it, the tuning's on you. Absolutely. All right, um, let's get to let's get to technical and performance pitfalls. And I think performance is the biggest thing after tuning with bass because it's basically it's all in the right hand. That's what I always say because bass tone mm -hmm. really is in the right hand. It, it, the way you hit, like how hard you hit, how consistent you hit is gonna determine what the bass sounds like, especially in like the rock or heavier genres. It's so, so important to be consistent and to hit pretty hard or like, um, right for the thing you're recording, and uh, that's something that I where I they, there's not much you can do about. Like sometimes I hear that they've used new strings and it's in tune, but it just ah, it's I don't know. It's just just doesn't sit right, doesn't feel right. It's not the foundation that I'm looking for, and it's because the playing sucks. So, right. um, the timing, of course, also, but more than anything, I think it's the 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 consistency and the attack that you hear in great bass players. Yeah, there's so many variables to consider as a musician. So, you know, when you're going to the studio for the first time, you get really obsessed with playing in time. Um, and maybe you start nailing that, you get really good with a metronome, and you think you're set. But you then have to also account for how you're hitting each note and like how it actually sounds and stuff like that. There's just, it's a big holistic thing that has to happen. Um, so, yeah. It's all in the right hand. Shout out to our listener, Richie Jackson, who I know is recording, I think today, maybe that was on the weekend. Ah. Uh, but he messaged me saying that he's been practicing his his down picking like crazy, <laughs> and getting his right hand in shape for it. And I was like, yes, good job, man. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's a good point. Like down picking with guitars and we get to that, maybe even more so in palm mute parts and stuff like that. But also with bass, if it's not really super fast, so if you can't pull it off, try, at least try uh, like doing downstrokes for some parts instead of like the alternate um, picking stuff. Sometimes it, yeah. it it depends. Sometimes the up depend. and down sounds better, but at least try what sounds better and don't automatically do the whatever feels easier or like don't don't go the the easy road route. Um, yeah. 
see if, if, if downstrokes maybe sound more consistent and, and powerful. The d- reason downpicking seems to be popular is that it is, in general, more consistent sounding than alternate picking. Um, it just kind of does that for you. So yeah. it's a kind of a, almost a trick to get a more consistent sound is just forcing yourself to downpick as much as possible. Yeah. When I get tracks from really great bass players, especially also in the, the rock or heavier genres, but like in general, Sometimes they play so consistently that it almost sounds like a MIDI bass or like a program mm-hmm. bass. Like I had yeah. that sometimes where I was like, "Wow, this is this is almost like um, I don't know. This is super super inhuman sounding in a way." It's yeah. like some people can pull that off where ex- every note is exactly the same almost, and it it might sound weird or like sterile or robotic on its own, but in the context of a song, most of the time it's just the foundation you need. So yeah, definitely. Uh, I I totally agree with that. Like MIDI bass, I actually quite love. I've gotten to use it a few times this year already, and it like has really done the job well. But I wish I could de or humanize it a little bit. Um, yeah. But honestly, I'd probably only like if there was a humanized knob, I'd probably dial it back five percent from perfect. That's all I'd want. You know, like just that slightest bit because it's. And then yeah, vice versa. When people send me tracks and they can get it to like damn near perfect sounding, like inhuman, like you said, it, it once it's in the mix, it's like oh my god, this is great. Oh yeah. Totally agreed. All right. What's next here? Um, well, we, we kind of talked about intonation already. Um, so that's, that's yeah. off the list, I think. Uh, <laughs> I've written down, I, I think I wrote this down. A reminder that MIDI bass solves all of this. <laughs> uh, that's, that's kind of a joke. I mean, I, like I said, I do love MIDI bass. And I think that a lot of rock um, and heavier productions can use it no problem. I actually just used it on a, a like kind of soft rock tune. Um, and it did great, but it, that song didn't demand uh, like focus on the bass part. You know, it's holding down the roots, syncing with the kick, MIDI bass like that. It was done in like 30 minutes programming, you know, um, and mix ready. So don't be afraid of that. You also, again, another situation that gives the, the mixer a lot of power because we can swap out the, the bass itself for a different virtual instrument. Um, but we won't dwell on that. Uh, I like this one that you wrote down, Benny, DI clipping. Did I write write that down? Ah, uh, yeah, oh, yeah, I right. I, I, yeah, I did. I did. I, I did. Yes. Um, yeah. Go on. What, what did you like about it? <laughs> well, I, I think it's just worth mentioning, um, and that's worth mentioning for all parts of this. Actually, uh, clipping seems to happen more often than it should for some reason. Um, but so clipping can can sound good. We we have to kind of establish that. I think, um, especially clipping the DI can be cool. Um, but it's probably something that you're better off just leaving alone and not doing and letting your mixer decide to do that if they want to. I can clip the DI signal if I get sent one that isn't clipped, right? Yes. <laughs> That's in my power. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yes, and also I think that it's a different sort of clipping. Like the clipping that happens mm-hmm. when people plug their active bass into an interface DI that doesn't have enough headroom for example, like a high C input on an interface. So for example, my interface here, my, my small bus-powered interface that I have, if I plug even my passive P-Bass in there and I hit the lowest string really hard, it clips with the gain uh, all the way to the left. Like There's just not enough headroom. And right. that sort of clipping that happens often, it just doesn't sound pleasing. And it's also inconsistent because you will clip the loudest notes and everything else will be clean. If we yeah. clip a DI on purpose, we'll probably do it in a different way. We'd probably try to make it consistent and give and use it to shape the overall sound of a bass or to tame some of the transients. But then it's probably not like the the ugly sort of digital hard clipping from a cheap preamp So yep. um, or a cheap converter. So as I think as with everything, 
it, it's all about being intentional. So what I'm talking about here when I say the eye clipping and a, you tr- should avoid it is you should avoid the unintentional clipping of your input for like if you have too, not enough headroom. And in this case, if that happens to you, use a DI box. If you have an active yep. instrument with a lot of output or even a passive bass and your inter- interface just can't handle it, use a DI box. Use a passive DI box with tons of headroom and uh, you don't have a problem. And just make sure it doesn't happen if you don't want it to. And even if you do want it to happen, maybe do it on a separate track. Maybe split it just to be safe. Yeah, I would agree. Um, in general, consumer or even prosumer interfaces and preamps don't clip well. Uh, so I've got like a Neve style preamp here that I occasionally use for that if I'm looking for that. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, it's not happening. Like I, I would never use my Apollo preamps to do that. Um, no. Fun fact, if you have an Apollo preamp, turn up the gain all the way with a guitar plugged in, and it's like the grossest fuzz tone you've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can always abuse your equipment like that on yes. purpose, of course. That's why I say it's all about intention. If that's the sound you want, by all means do it. But maybe use a splitter or so in front of it and just record another um, yes. version of it without the clipping just to be safe. Yeah, but definitely. Yeah. Great thing. Um, up next, wrong bass for the job. That's a common one. There's not yeah. often, there's always like six guitars in the room and then one bass. <laughs> True. True. And nobody, and if it's like you're at a studio where the the producer who's probably a guitarist bought the bass, it's probably not even that great of a bass. Like it's like they're, they're willing to spend thousands on a guitar, but bass, hmm. <laughs> yeah. So uh, if you can track down some options for bass guitars before you go into a session, that's a great use of time. Yes, absolutely. And I would say, I'd start, by the way, you don't have to explore all the options because I would start with like the basic tried and true things that always worked all across every genre, basically. So there are, of course, unless you are in a very niche thing where a certain style of instrument is required, if you start with either a P bass or a J bass, like a jazz bass or a precision bass, you're going to cover most of it already. Yep. Maybe you want to try like something like a, a Music Man, like the Sterling bass or something like that. Or maybe you want to go, if you're doing modern metal sort of thing, you want to have uh, a five string or uh, like the... Um, the ding wall. Ding wall, something like that, exactly. Some, But usually, bef- I wouldn't tr- go and try all the weird bases and sorts of types of bases that exist, I would start with one of these and you probably find something that works. I like I could use a, a, a precision base or a jazz base on almost everything. So yeah. yeah. Uh, just make sure it intonates and and sounds great. You know, um I've got a P base on my wall and it it works almost every time. It's great. Yeah. Um I think when you're choosing bases you also need to consider scale length and tuning uh and make sure that you can actually play and tune at the the tuning that you want to do um that's been actually going back to midi bass real quick that's one reason i end up using midi bass sometimes is that we're in a low tuning that the instruments that are available to us aren't great at going to um so midi bass lets us get there and still have that tuning stability yes yeah exactly for super low tunings consider a five string or like all sorts of things um that's a little out outside of of the the usual stuff so but yeah yeah totally agreed yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, wrong base for the job. I mean, it's obvious. Uh, then, wrong person for the job. That's an interesting one, too, and that can uh, happen. It happens pretty often, actually. 
Sometimes yep. your rhythm guitar player is the better bassist, for example. Again, this goes back to it's all in the right hand. And yep. pretty much somebody in your band is going to hopefully have a monster right hand. And you should take advantage of that because it will transform how your records sound. Yep, absolutely. Sometimes it's the other way around. Sometimes the bassist is really, really good. And like the rhythm guitarist has some timing issues or not, it's just inconsistent or it's not hitting hard enough. Sometimes if the bass player can play guitar, sometimes it's worth trying the other way around. But anyway, just figure out who is probably the best person to do it. And if you can, like, just leave your ego outside the 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 studio or yeah. the jam space because it's like it doesn't help the record, and no one cares in the end who has played that bass. No one cares if it's MIDI, if it's the bass player, if it's the guitarist or the vocalist. It, it like all that matters is what comes out of the speakers, as always. So yeah, I know it's yeah. not hard. It's not easy for a lot of people to do, and everyone's passionate about the record and the band, and I totally get that. But have a conversation about it. And if you really feel like the bass player is not the best person to play bass in the studio, maybe try and have another person do it. Definitely. Better is better. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. So we skipped one thing here that I want to uh, go to real quick. And this is not enough oh. top end and mid-range in a bass tone. We have an entire episode on that, so we don't have to say much about it. It's episode 12. So if you go to the selfrecordingband.com slash 12, You'll find that episode or on your podcast app. Just go to episode 12. Um, right. It's called Bass Tone is More Than Just Low End. Um, and it's about this. So sometimes people think if they have a, a thick, big, low end, that's all they need. But it, they're lacking top end and mid-range. Oftentimes that comes from using old strings. Sometimes it comes from like, sometimes they dial back the top end on the bass itself because mm -hmm. they think it's like noisy or they... Sometimes people don't realize that this stuff is actually can actually be useful. Um, but when in doubt, leave that stuff in. We can always make it duller and filter it out. But if it's not there, if it lacks the harmonic content, if it lacks the top end, the clarity, there's only so much you can do as a mixer. You can't bring back what's never been there. Yeah. So when in doubt, I'd always track a brighter bass um, Definitely. And, and send that to the mixer. Yeah, That's all I, I, I agree with that so much. It's uh, so much of that energy and punch is, is that top end and, and higher mid-range stuff. Um, and that, that's a reason why picks get used so often in the studio, actually, is because it just adds that attack, which, which is so useful for us mixing. It really lets us like, you know, lock it in with, uh, with a, a kick drum or a snare drum, actually. Um, we can really blend those two off of that transient stuff. Uh, and picks also help things be more consistent in general too. Yeah. In general. That being said, like if you already know you don't want to have like a bright or clear bass tone, if you're doing some indie stuff where you want a really mellow, really like dull sounding bass or whatever, just as again, record a clean DI with all the mid-range and top end and do it on a separate track with whatever amp settings you want or filter it or do whatever. Just f to be safe, include the clean, clear DI and I always think about it in the way that if you think about what a, a, a low piano note sounds like, the clarity you get on a piano, that's yep. what your bass should sound like most of the time. So I don't know. That's the closest thing I can I can compare it to. Like a deep, I totally agree. A deep note on a piano, that's basically the bass sound I want, the clarity I want. Yeah, and, and consistency like that as well, um, where it sounds like that big full thing each time you hit that key on a piano. Yeah. Exactly. All right, cool. That's it for right. bass, basically. Yep. Now we'll be doing guitars, which is going to have a lot of overlap with bass. Yeah, it is uh, going to be a short one. Yeah. So clean DI, same thing. Reference tone track plus DI. 
Uh, yeah, great amp capture is always good, of course, but just include the DI to be safe. The amp capture could could be used, could also just serve as a reference. Yep. Um, so both both should be possible for most people. Don't only send the DI because then you have to guess whatever guitar tone you want it. So that's not good. Yeah, unless it is like because sometimes DI is a tone that people go after. Oh yeah. Um, so if that's what you like, a, a, a J bass into a DI really has a sound. I find kind of thing. Um, yeah. Really with guitar, funky. it's really the case, I think, right? Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, we, we, uh, you know, actually, <laughs> when I worked with Spiritbox, um, who I think we've talked about on this before, uh, they had backing tracks. We were doing like a live recording session, um, and uh, they had like backing tracks going and stuff. And there was some clean parts, so he was playing like this crazy distorted stuff, and there's like a clean ambient thing going over top of it. And we did a, a pass through, and that track played, and I was like, "Hmm, hey, hey, Mike, I think like there's meant to be some amp model on this DI track because it, like the clean track just sounds like a DI." And he's like, "No, that's kind of what we do in this genre. We just throw reverb on a DI for the cleans." <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> All right, <laughs> there's there's something new every day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I could totally see that, and sometimes I could also imagine like for I don't know funk or anything where you needed oh, yeah. a clear attack and basically just a clean, percussive sort of guitar sound. DI is a great thing because you have all the transients, all the punch, all the, the percussiveness. So, yeah, I can see that. Yep. <laughs> That's a <laughs> funny, funny story. story I, didn't expect, I didn't expect it for, but with Spirit Box, though, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so important one you've got down here is wrong pick choice. Uh, really easy to overlook that. Um, a guitar pick transforms the attack of a guitar and again that's something that's really really uh, great for a mixer to to be able to use and it's something we can't really change necessarily we can't really change like how the harmonic transient of a guitar sounds once you've recorded it that much Um, so choosing the right pick makes a big difference yeah choosing the right pick and holding it at the right angle as well like hitting the string at the right angle the 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 combination of those two makes such a difference and there's basically two two angles that i uh, or two perspectives um that i look at it and it's the first one is how precise the attack is or how scratchy it sounds for lack of a better term like you could have you could choose a pick and hold it in a way so that you have a really clear, sharp, short transient, especially with palm mutes or like leads or anything with a clear attack. Um, not so much like with open chords, but like with palm mutes or single notes, stuff like that. Or you could have a, a longer sort of attack or more scratchy attack that, that just, I don't know how to describe it, yet, but you know, the sound of like scratching along the string if mm-hmm. when palm mutes do the thing, you know what yeah. I mean? Yes. So that's that can be desired or not. And it's the result of pick choice and the angle you hold it basically and how hard you hit also. But like this can really be um, manipulated by by choosing the right pick and or changed. And the second perspective is sometimes you have, especially with leads, you get weird squeaky noises. Um that are pretty annoying that sometimes you don't hear them right away, but once you notice it, you can't unhear it and it's like (laughs) really bothering you and you can't get rid of those squeaks and squeals and stuff that that shouldn't be in there. And that is oftentimes also the result of picking the wrong pick. Like one pick could do that and another pick could totally get rid of all this or help you get rid of all this. Yep. Yeah, it's it's really important. Uh, The thickness of the pick will also affect how consistent you play. So keep that in mind. Oh, yeah. Um, it's a reason that I gravitate to thicker picks. I find that they are generally more dynamically consistent. 
Um, but that said, there's always a time and a place for a soft pick. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a good thing you bring that up because most people, when, when when we talk about pick choice, they think of different thicknesses probably and they have their model of pick that they just like. But mm. we're talking... Material. Uh, yeah, we're talking thickness, but we also talk material and shape of the pick. So you could have right. like a jazz pick, you could have the standard Tortex, you could have... There are different shapes and it all matters. So it's, it's the shape, it's the material, and it's the thickness. So yeah. don't just use whatever you like and then vary, like uh, use varying thicknesses. Just try different picks, completely different picks, shapes and materials as well. Yeah, it, it's good to have a little container of options sitting nearby and always have a green, a green Tortex handy. Yeah, that's like <laughs> tried and true, the most commonly successful one. Um, not always, but it yeah. definitely seems to win yeah. the most. <laughs> and I okay. think like most engineers would agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so to me, the three most used are the green Tortex. The black jazz pick, yep. like not the red one, but the black one. The, the black one, yeah. I don't know what it's called, jazz three or something black. I think I don't so. Know. That and uh, the big the one or the small one. It's a yellow or like bright yellow ish. Um, yeah, yeah. It's kind of like sort of, translucent a little bit. Yes. Um, I really, and I, I, that's funny. I, I would really have like said that. the exact same three uh, and, and in the same order. Um, now that jazz pick the oversized one the, so the one that's like the size of a normal pick or the tiny one uh no the it's i think it's a little bigger than it's a little smaller than a normal pick but it's i think bigger than the red one than the tiny one yeah yeah yeah. not We're the tiny one the, same the one. black one is, yeah. is a little bigger yeah cool yes um there try. you go try it out those are the, the, the three ones you need <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, i'm going to leave this next note to you to lead in because i'm i'm curious i want to i want to hear what you have to say about it okay so the alternative picking um, or downstrokes, so up and down or just downstrokes, especially for palm mutes and heavy chugs. So what I, what I mean by that is often when I get stuff from people, sometimes they played a palm mute part that's actually not too fa fast to pull it off with downstrokes only. But mm. for some reason, they just did what was easier probably or felt more natural and they went for the up and down strokes. Right. And that's sometimes or oftentimes sounds weaker, more inconsistent, and also causes timing issues. So if you're playing like eighth notes, for example, um, and you only play downstrokes, chances are each of the strokes will be pretty much the same um, yeah, intensity, the same volume, and like have the same attack. You will pretty much be able to nail the timing. And if you go up and down, it might feel easier, but it often has this weird shuffle to it when it's not yeah. supposed to. And it, it has weird um, inconsistent attack. And um, I don't know. It's just something people don't think about, I think. They think it sounds the same, but it totally doesn't. So yeah, yeah, whenever you can, changes. I would do downstrokes. Unless it's really too fast. Dynamics change, uh, attack changes, uh, timing changes. Uh, so it's definitely a... a I, I don't want to say that you should never alternate no. pick because obviously no. there's tons of like every song's gonna have a spot probably yep. but uh i think what we're saying is to default to trying to down pick yeah um and that's gonna give you more often than not that's gonna be a better choice so we're kind of giving you like the in general aim for this yeah totally so the next one i'm gonna um give to you but basically okay. because you we had a conversation about this the ringing strings and what to do about it because yeah. i have to be honest it doesn't bother me as often as it seems to bother other people. So I don't use a fret rep every single time. And I don't right. do, a, like, I will mute strings whenever something bothers me. So we're talking about ringing strings that are not, that are not supposed to be there. 
Mm-hmm. But I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts because I, do, I don't do much in that regard unless it's really bothering me or like a person con- con- constantly hits a string that's just not supposed to be in the chord. I'll right. tape it away or whatever. But there are people who use who always use fret reps and try to make sure nothing is ringing. And what's your take on that? Yeah, um, I, I don't default to it. I kind of, again, if it, I hear it, I've got the, the little piece of paper towel handy to like slide under the strings and mute them out or whatever. And then, yeah, I'm always beside the guitar, so I'm reaching over and muting the string if I need to. So it's not like an always thing. I don't have something around the nut like some people do and stuff. Um, but that said, I never regret it. When I'm mixing and I'm like doing a part that I know that we did that too, I'm like, dang, this sounds really good and clean. I'm stoked we did that. <laughs> no, yeah. So uh, it's something that I'm like, maybe I should do more of this because it's it's really awesome being able to really like limit or or even distort more um like a guitar part without bringing out anything negative it's just like embracing like we all we have is good <laughs> i like that um yeah. it's kind of like have being able to have a drum shell without cymbal bleed you can really mangle it into something unique and cool in that situation because it's alone um that's why drum samples can be so powerful for example so it's kind of similar. If we eliminate these extra noises, it kind of gives me more power to fuck shit up. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, agreed. Um, maybe I should do it more as well. That's why I was asking. I just, it doesn't it doesn't bother me as much, I guess. I, I, like, I really don't like it, of course, if there's a string that just doesn't belong to the chord we're playing. We need to do right. something about that. But the the noises that a guitar makes, if you don't mute the strings, like on the head of the guitar, for example, like... I don't mute that always, but maybe I should do more often just to get a cleaner sound. It's yeah. it's kind of a, a must or like a recommendation for the really heavy stuff if you want to get it really clean sounding. Not clean, like if you want to record heavy distorted guitars, obviously, but so not clean yeah. guitars. But if you want that very, very defined um, yeah, sort of heavy sound. So that that's clean in mm-hmm. the sense that, as you said, there's only stuff in it that belongs there. It's hard to describe. Yeah, that's actually a good point to bring up is that the heavier you're going, the more clean you need your recording to be. Yeah. Because um, there's there's no noise to signal to noise ratio, really. It's all just noise. <laughs> it's all loud. Um, so that the little tiny scuffs of an in, unintentional string get brought up in volume so much by like distorting an amp heavily. Um, so that's that's why. Uh, again, it it really all always depends. So trust your ears on that. Mm. Um, and I'm more so, what I'm talking about when I'm talking about string muting is muting like the if they're playing a power chord on the top three strings, muting the ones under it so their hand doesn't accidentally pluck those every once in a while. Um, and it's almost just it speeds up tracking. We don't have to even worry about if they strum too far. It's not going to ruin the take anymore. So that's nice. Yeah, totally. Then um, pick a tech cutoff. What I meant by that is, I think I put that in there, but like if I did, what I meant by that is, and that's that's something I, I encounter pretty often, is that when people edit their stuff themselves, or even if they just cut the, away the, the silence before the song or something, sometimes they cut into the first attack, like the first note. And if they mm-hmm. edit guitars, they do it throughout the song multiple times, which is really bad. And that is because... If you look at, maybe if you look at a DI, the first thing you see or the biggest thing you see and you think that's the transient is not actually the transient. It's already the note that you see that has the most energy. And right before that, like a couple of milliseconds before that is the actual pick attack. And you don't really see that on a DI. You see the, the transients or the, the chords or the, the um, 
yeah, the individual hits, you see them pretty well on a DI, but you don't actually see the pick attack. And mm. you need to either leave enough, like either need enough, leave enough space before those cuts, those notes, or um, you do some sort of, you use some, some sort of trick to make the pick attack visible. And you can do that right. by distorting the track, like putting an amp sim on and then filtering out the low end below one kilohertz or so, then printing that so you see the waveform and use that as a guide to edit your DIs. And that what you will see is that on that track with the distortion and with the, the low cut on, that the actual pick attack, the scratchy pick attack thing, will be a bit before the thing you see on the DI track. And that's where you want to cut and edit. And you don't want to cut into the guitar. So that's just yeah. a little uh, help here. Like You can do it without that trick if you know, like if you just get some experience. But just know that you absolutely don't want to accidentally cut into the pick attack. Agreed. Yeah, it's uh, that's again just another experience thing. And you learn to kind of be able to, to just see what you're actually meant to be looking at. But it is deceiving until you figure that out. Yeah. And by the way, if you're not editing yourself at all and just sending the whole raw thing, don't like leave a couple of bars of space before the first note. Like there's no reason to cut, uh, like or yeah. to ex export from bar one, beat one, bar one of the song. Like you can have as many bars as you want before the song, basically. Just uh, like, so some people do that for whatever reason, but there's no need to do that. Just include two bars of silence to be safe and that's and yeah, good. And a longer fade out as well than you think. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Same, yep. Um, I don't think we need to spend time on this next thing no. because we already said it, but let's just say it. Uh, the wrong guitar for the job. This is also ju just as common or maybe more common than even having the wrong bass for the job. Um, guitarists are so prefer preferential to their live guitar. But the live guitar is probably got destroyed frets <laughs> and is terrible in the studio. <laughs> yeah. So uh, have some guitar options um, and and different pickup options. You know, uh, sometimes single coils are exactly what you need. Sometimes humbuckers are. Sometimes active pickups could be the sound you need. Um, and then wrong person for the job, of course, is still relevant. Yeah. Uh, Wrong amp for the job is a real thing too. But if you're giving us a DI, that's why, again, the DI is so important because we don't expect you to have a wall of different vintage marshals and stuff to, to shoot out and figure out while you're in the studio. So if you give us a DI, a mixer can do that for you. Oh yeah, agreed. You know what? I think, despite what we said in the beginning, we should maybe do a third part of the series because okay. we are close to an hour with this episode and I don't feel we should... Rush it. Uh, treat, yeah, we should. You shouldn't treat vocals as an afterthought that we just burn through real quick because it's just so important and so much you, that can go wrong. Yep. Let's do a dedicated episode on vocals. I'm down, and we we do have keys to cover, although that will be very. Oh quick. yeah, yeah, um, exactly. So yeah, we'll we'll wrap those up into part three. Yes, it's better for 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 you as a listener if we do that. So yes. sorry, uh, <laughs> we said we're gonna do, but it's gonna be three. And I think this is probably, to be honest, this is probably one of the most helpful series of um, episodes that we've did so far. Like yeah, we covered so I, much I in these three episodes. It's it's pretty cool. So stoked. <laughs> yep. I, uh, I'm so excited to have all three of these out because whenever somebody starts a project, it'll be like, listen to these three in order and make notes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like the most important thing you could do before you go into the studio. Yes, totally. So one more thing before we wrap it up here is, or actually two more things. As always, I'd love to see you in our Facebook community, or we love, we'd love to see you in our Facebook community. So if you go to theselfrecordingband.com slash community, 
you will be forwarded like to uh, redirected to the the Facebook community and you can join that it's free it's um, a great place to hang to ask questions to um, get feedback on the stuff you're working on join us there that's the one thing that I wanted to say and the other thing that I wanted to say is as last episode I already mentioned it we have a gear guide it's like the essential it's called the essential DIY recording gear guide and um, you get it if you go to the selfrecordingband.com slash gear guide and it like it's a great addition. That's what I wanted to say to this episode because we covered the the bare minimum requirements that you have to do basically, and this gear guide covers the minimum requirements of stuff you need to get in order to record yourself. So it covers microphones, right. interfaces, computers. I think like all all sorts of things. Um, it's free. Download it. The selfrecordingband.com slash gear guide and. Pair this with this three-part series of episodes and you're off to a great start, I think. Definitely. Definitely. All awesome. right. Well, then cool. we'll be back with some more next week. Exactly. See you. Bye. Thanks for listening. Bye. Hey, friend. Thanks again for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed this one, just know that this is just a tiny fraction, a small taste of what we can actually do to help you completely transform your recordings and mixes forever. If you are really serious about your music, if you want to reach your goals as a self-recording artist, then please apply now for the Self-Recording Syndicate, our coaching program that takes you from where you are to being able to completely independently produce and release exciting sounding music forever. If you join that program, you're going to be part of a very, very passionate, dedicated, committed group of self-recording artists from all around the world. And you're going to get a roadmap, guidance, feedback, personal access to me and the team. We're going to do everything, literally everything we can to help you make the best recordings you can possibly make and it all starts with a free first call. Completely free, no strings attached. Best case scenario, we're going to end up working together and we're going to completely transform the way your music sounds. Worst case scenario, you're going to get an hour of free coaching and an action plan that you can then take and implement on your own. So if that sounds interesting to you, get started now with your first completely free call by going to the selfrecordingband.com slash call or just click the link in the show notes. See you next week.